Turn to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, verse 28. So we're going to be starting today. We're in a passage with a series of questions where the religious leaders, time and time again, approach him, some trying to test him, some trying to discredit him. This is all right before his death, burial, and resurrection. This is the Passion Week. And it's the religious leaders' last attempt to get Jesus to say something so they might have an excuse to arrest him and put him away. But today, we see a glimmer of hope. We see some light. We see, we see the possibility that perhaps not all the religious leaders are against Jesus Christ. In fact, the passage today, I think, points to a question that perhaps many of you have asked at some point in your life. What does God want from me? Have you ever asked yourself that question? What does he want from me? You know, perhaps you've asked this question in exhaustion. You're desperately trying to earn favor with God, right? You're trying to work your way to heaven. You're weary, and you've reached the point where you're like, what does he even want? What does God expect from me? I'm trying my best. I'm exhausted. What does he want? In a similar way, perhaps you've asked this question in frustration. You've become embittered and angry, trying to follow a list of commands. And in frustration, you throw up your arms and you say, What does God want from me? Maybe you've asked this question in pride. You're confident in your own knowledge of Scripture and your obedience to it. Perhaps you've asked this question out of just plain curiosity. You just want to know. You believe there's a God out there, but what does He want? If there's a God, surely He wants something from me. Surely there's some level of accountability if there's a divine creator who made me What does God want? What does he expect? This is an important question. Not just for a curious seeker, but also for a lifelong believer. And since Jesus has answered all things well up to this point in this passage, Mark chapter 12, let's ask him the question. Jesus, which commandment is greatest of all? And this is a question that Jesus welcomes. Let's look together in Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 28. Again, within the context of religious leaders coming to him with questions, seeking to discredit him. They're coming to him with a spirit of hypocrisy, not genuinely. But yet, in our passage today, we meet one of the scribes. One of the scribes who's been listening. He's been watching. He's been seeing Jesus answer all of these questions. We pick up our reading in verse 28. One of the scribes came. And having heard them reasoning together, or perhaps better, debating together, and perceiving that he, Jesus, had answered them well, this scribe asks him, which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, And with all thy mind, and with all thy strength, this is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said unto him, well, master, thou hast said the truth, for there is one God, 
and there is none other but he, and to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love his neighbor as himself is more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered discreetly or wisely, he said unto him, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. And no man after that dared ask him any more questions. Every sect of Jewish leadership has approached Jesus. They have all tried their best to trap and discredit him. But this one scribe who's been listening to the debates and hearing the wisdom and authority of Jesus on display, he hears it and he decides to ask his own question, not to test or discredit Jesus. The scribe wants an answer. He wants a true answer from Jesus himself. He sees something in Jesus and has a feeling that this teacher would give him the truth. And he asks Jesus a question. What is the first commandment of all? Now, he isn't asking which commandment came first in sequence. What is the first one that is spoken? He says first in reference to importance. In other words, which command is most important of all? What is the all-encompassing commandment? As we consider this question, let's consider the person asking it, a scribe. Who were the scribes? Well, the scribes were a group of people that knew the law, the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, under which the the people of Israel were. The scribes were the teachers of the law, Rabbinic tradition states that there were a total of 613 commandments in the Torah. You thought there were only 10, the 10 commandments. There are 613. And within that, there were what the scribes considered to be some lighter and heavier commands. Some, they're all commands, they're all given by God, but some are lighter, some are heavier, depending on the consequences. You thought your parents' lists of rules were extensive, There were a lot of rules in the Mosaic Law. And the Pharisees and scribes prided themselves in their knowledge of that law. They knew the law. Not only did the scribes know the law, but they sought to live the law. They took great pride in adherence to these commands. They knew the law. They lived the law. They taught the law. In fact, it was quite common for rabbis to summarize the law. That it was a question that was often given to rabbis. Condense the law for me. There's a lot. There's over 600. Can you kind of boil it down? That was a question often asked rabbis. Give me the Cliff Notes version. If you were under the Old Testament law, you'd want that same thing. You'd want, me, you'd want all of those commands to kind of be distilled and condensed into one basic idea. And the fact that this scribe is the one coming to Jesus with this question shows the supreme authority Jesus had even over the scribes. The scribes are the ones who would be answering this question, and yet this one particular scribe, who would typically be in the place of answering this question, sees the wisdom of Jesus, sees the authority of Jesus, and says, Jesus, what do you think? What's your answer? We saw Jesus' authority over the scribes ever since the opening pages of the book of Mark. Mark chapter 1, verse 22, it says they were astonished with Jesus' teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And so finally, a scribe himself is coming to Jesus, seeing his authority. 
And in verse 29, we see his answer. He asks, what's the greatest commandment? And in verses 29 through 30, he tells him quite plainly, the first and greatest commandment is to love God. The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Now, when he said these words, the scribe knew exactly what Jesus was doing. He was quoting something. In in fact, he was quoting one of the most well-loved and well-known passages in the Old Testament. It comes from Deuteronomy 6, but it was called the Shema. The Shema in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 through 5, says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And if you look in the broader passage of Deuteronomy chapter 6, you find out that these words precede the instruction to follow and obey all the commandments of the Lord. Love comes first. But you'll notice he doesn't stop with one commandment, does he? The scribe asks for the greatest, but Jesus gives him a two-for-one deal. Verse 31, he says, the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And there is no other commandment greater than these. Why did Jesus do this? Why did Jesus throw in a second commandment when the scribe only asked for one, the greatest? I believe it's because Jesus could not preach about the love of God without also preaching about the love for others. They come together. And in fact, this is yet another quotation his love, the love for others, love your, your neighbor as yourself, comes from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, which reads, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You cannot have one command without the other. If you talk about loving God, you must necessarily also include loving others. Love God, love others. And he concludes in verse 31, there is no other commandment greater than these. Do you want a summary of all of the law, all 613 commandments in the Torah? Here it is. Love God and love others. This is from the mouth of Jesus himself. It is not about rule keeping, ritual, or church attendance that is at the very center of Christianity. It is love. Look with me in in Mark chapter 12, verse 32. We see the scribe's response. The scribe said to him, You're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there's no other besides him, and to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. The scribe agrees with Jesus. He says, teacher, you are correct. And when Jesus saw this scribe answered wisely, what did he tell them? Tell him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. This scribe was close to the kingdom. What made him so close? What made him not far from the kingdom of God? What was it about his agreement with Jesus' words that brought him just at the doorstep of the kingdom 
of God. As we consider this, these words of Jesus, this command to love God and love others, I want to highlight, first of all, how we see the source of love in this passage. Where do we see the source of love in our passage today? I believe it begins with the, the words that start before the command is ever given. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love is sourced in God himself. The greatest commandment begins not with a command to love God. The greatest commandment begins with a declaration of who God is. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. The Lord, the, our God is one. Our first duty, before we ever are called to love, our first responsibility is to hear. To hear who God is and worship His holiness. God alone deserves our loves, our love. In his agreement with Jesus down in verse 32, the scribe rephrases Jesus' words where he agrees and says he is one and there is no other besides him. God is the only being worthy of your total and undivided loyalty. He is God, the supreme creator, and it's only when we grasp that reality, when we grasp the glory of God, that we will come to love him with all our hearts and souls and minds and strength. You know, there are many lesser things that we love in this world that do not deserve that love. We set up our own gods, our own idols, and attribute to those things the glory and honor that only God deserves, rather than turning our hearts to love the one and only true God that no, there's no other beside Him, we turn our hearts to lust after the world. This is what we read in Romans chapter 1, verse 23, where, where we have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now, some of you might be here today with some misplaced love. You have created your own God, and your affection is directed toward it. That is where your love is placed. And perhaps you need to hear, too, that the Lord, our God, the Lord is one, and there is no other besides him. You must love God. Some of you might have a misplaced love. Some of you might have a divided love. You, you love God a little bit, but you also deeply love these other idols you've set up for yourself. You need to hear that he is one, and there's no other beside him. God is the source of our love because he alone deserves our love, but secondly, the, God alone reveals our, his love. There's another important reason why this greatest commandment begins with God, and it's because love itself is sourced from God. For the Jews reading the Shema as they finished their wilderness journey, about to enter the promised land, they knew that it was God who loved them first. It was God who rescued them from Egypt and showed himself superior to the false idols of Egypt. It was God alone who lovingly led them through the wilderness. And now, as they were about to experience his blessings in the promised land, they were commanded Love God back. And here's a truth we see all throughout Scripture, and it's this. Genuine love is sourced in God's love 
for you. And we can try to manufacture a loving heart out of our own effort, but it will always fall short of the love that we see described in this passage. In fact, we can draw a, connect, a, direct, a direct connection from God's love for us to our love for God and ultimately to our love for others. This is the pattern that he sets up. It begins with his love. And it's only our love of God that flows out of his love for us. Listen to 1 John 4, 19 through 21. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, what's true about him? He's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment that we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Do you see the chain in that passage? Where does it begin? It begins with God's love for us. We love because he first loved us. And as a response to his love for us, we love him. And as we love him, we consequently and necessarily love one another. But we have a skewed perspective sometimes. In fact, you know what sometimes we do? We take God's way and we flip it. That's basically what we always do with God's pattern and God's way. We just take his approach and we just reverse it. It's one of Satan's favorite strategies in, in, in trying to distort God's message and God's plan. He just takes God's plan, reverses it. And how might we reverse this pattern this, this way? We begin with God's, our, our love for others. In fact, it's not hard to see that our culture emphasizes and preaches that we love each other. But they're skipping straight to the third step. They're beginning with the, the downstream effect of God's love for us. They see the need for love, but when you skip straight to the third step, it's no wonder that their definition of love is often skewed, often warped. They're not receiving their love from the source of love. Others might even place love for others as a priority over love for God. That it is only when you love others that you can truly love God, and then ultimately, that is the only way that God will love you. You love others, flowing into your love for God, ultimately flowing into God's love for you. And as a result, love becomes a way to earn God's love for you. But the Bible has it completely reversed. It begins with God's love for you. It's unmerited. It's free. He's the one who started it. And as you see his love for, for you, you respond with genuine love for him. And then that genuine love for him flows out into a love for others. Perhaps you find yourself unable to love others as you should. Think of that person that is just really hard to love. We all got them, right? Do you ever find it just difficult to love others as you should? You're mistreating your spouse. You're hateful towards your family. You couldn't care less about the person sitting in the cubicle next to you. You, you just couldn't care less about other people. You don't love other people. How do you fix that? Well, I can tell you, it's not just by doing better. It's not just by loving better. Your love for others must come from your love of God. 
And as it says in 1 John 4, whoever loves God must also love his brother. You say, I can't love other people. Well, how do I fix it? You love God. But yet we run into the same problem. I'm having a hard time loving God. I know I should. I look at this passage and say, I should love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's really hard. That's difficult. And I, for one, can raise my hand and say, I, I, I don't do that very often. How do we fix it? Well, not just by doing better. Just be, oh, I just got to love more. <clears throat> I'm just going to close my eyes and just love God more. Your love from God must come from where? God's love for you. You love God as you know him more. We love because he first loved us. 1 John 3, 16 through 17. By this, we know love. That he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? There again, you see the direct chain from God's love for you to your love for God to your love for others. And knowing the source of love is going to be really important when we dig into the standard of love. Because we consider the standard of love, we realize something really quickly. This is a high standard. And I don't think I can attain it. How in the world am I supposed to love God with all of me? My heart, soul, mind, and strength. How in the world am I supposed to love others as myself? It's a high standard. Which is why it's so important that we must begin with God's love for us. But let's consider the standard that he sets forth in his answer to the scribe. First of all, love God more than yourself. The first and greatest commandment is not just to love God, but to love him with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is a comprehensive love. It includes every part of you. But it not only includes every part of you, but it includes every part of every part of you. All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And the main meaning of this phrase is that your entire being should be involved. You should love God with everything. You should love God in your thoughts. Love God in your emotions. You should love God in your will. You should love God in your strength, your vitality. I don't think we have to get too caught up in trying to divide these different words and different parts of humanity, although there's different emphases with each one. The main idea is the comprehensiveness. We even see that the scribe, when he agrees with Jesus, kind of changes the list. He changes the list from, from mind to understanding. We see other passages of Scripture where there's a different list, but carrying the same idea. Matthew 22, verse 37 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and mind. Doesn't include strength. Luke 10, 27, you shall, he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, or strength, and mind, and neighbor as yourself. There's different variations of this list, but they all communicate the same thing. Your entire life, your entire being, should love God. 
because of God's love for us, his mercies that he so graciously bestowed on us, we are to love him with our entire being. And this is exactly what we see in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. What prompts such a total, comprehensive devotion and love for God? We see it right there in Romans 12, 1, don't we? By the mercies of God. Our love for God can only come from his love for us. And it is only when you see the extent of his mercy towards you and his love towards you and his unconditional grace toward you that you conclude that it is only reasonable for you to love God with everything in you because he gave everything for you. This is exactly what we read in Romans 12. It is your reasonable service. Love God more than yourself. This lies at the very heart of our idolatrous tendencies as humans. We love ourselves more than God. But not only the standard to love God is to love Him more than yourself, but secondly, love others as yourself. Although the scribe asked for only one command, Jesus gave him two, because you cannot have one without the other. Not only are we to love God with everything in us, but we are to love others as ourselves. In other words, those who know God and see his love will reflect his nature, and his very nature is love. That is his nature. And who do we reflect that nature to? Those around us. In fact, loving others is probably the greatest way of showing your love for God. Love others as yourself. Now, some might conclude from this passage that, that, teaching, that it's actually teaching the importance and necess- necessity of loving yourself. Have you heard that before? It says, love your neighbor as yourself, so therefore the command is to first love yourself so that you can love your neighbor as yourself. But this isn't found in Jesus' commands at all. The standard is given because we naturally know how to love ourselves, to look out for our own interests. Now, I'll admit, we don't always treat ourselves accordingly. But we all know how we want to be treated. You may think, man, I, just, oh, I don't think I love myself. I don't treat myself well. No, we, we often don't treat ourselves well. But the golden rule is not treat others the way you treat yourself. The golden rule is treat others the way you want to be treated. We all know how we want to be treated. Love others as yourself. And additionally, to make love of self the prerequisite for loving others is to completely misinterpret the passage. Why? Well, because the passage already gives us the prerequisite for loving others. And what is it? Our 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 love of God. To say, no, 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 your love for others springs from your love for self is adding a step to the chain that God has set forth in this passage. Your love for others does not spring from your love of yourself. Your love of others springs directly from your love of God. If you mistreat and demean those around you, the solution is not to love yourself more, but to rather get to know God more. And the more you know his love, the more you see who he is, you will reflect that love. You will show that love to those made in his image. 
This is a high standard. Love God more than yourself. Love others as yourself. It only comes from knowing God's love for you. Do you know that love? Have you experienced that love? Have you seen that love? If not, there's no wonder we might have a big deficiency in your love toward others. We've seen the source of love. We've seen the standard of love. Finally, let's look at the supremacy of love. And here is the reason why these are the greatest commandments. Because there's no other commandment in existence in God's law that does not fall under one of these two commands. Every law given by God fell under the category of either loving God or loving others. The old commentator Matthew Henry says, Where there is a commanding principle in the soul, there is a disposition to every other duty. That it begins with that commanding principle. Do I love God? Do I love others? And from that disposition, that commanding principle results in a disposition for the other commands that God has set forth. We see that love fulfills the law. Jesus says, there's no command greater than these. In fact, we can even see this in the Ten Commandments. If you were in our small groups this morning, perhaps you walked through those. If you look at the Ten Commandments, the first four commandments speak of our love for God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not take the name of God in vain. You shall keep the Sabbath day. The last six commands speak of our love for others. Honor your father and mother. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. And thou shalt not covet. All of those last six talk about your love for others. What comes first? Love for God. What comes next? Love for others. In fact, in the parallel passage, Matthew 22, verse 40, we read that Jesus says that on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. They, on all the law and the prophets hang on one of these two commands. We see this confirmed in, Matthew, in Romans chapter 13. In verse 8 through 10, we read this. Owe no one anything except to love each other. And listen to this phrase. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any, any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, and therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. We read this elsewhere in Scripture, Galatians 5.14, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. James 2.8 says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. And herein lied the problem with the scribes and the Pharisees. They thought they could perfectly keep the law without bothering with that whole love your neighbor thing. We read in Matthew 23, verse 23, that Jesus, as he calls out the scribes and the Pharisees, he says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected what? The weightier matters of the law. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. 
here in this passage even see the differentiation between weightier matters of the law and lighter matters of the law. And he says, yes, keep them all. But when you lack a love for God and and a love for others, what does it look like? It looks like a rigorous obedience to the minute details while neglecting the weightier matters of the law. This is what religiosity looks like when fueled by pride. What does it look like? It looks like religious and rigorous rule-keeping while ignoring the important stuff. Can Christians ever be guilty of that? In Matthew 23, there are weightier matters. There are lighter matters. Why would someone scrupulously follow all the lighter matters of the law while completely ignoring the weightier matters of the law? Because you know what the weightier matters of the law require? Love. The religious life of the Pharisees was one marked by hypocrisy and pride. Love for God and love for others require a genuine humility. And therefore, it cannot exist in the heart of a proud person. And so what's the best thing that a proud person can do? Master the externals, the minute details, while neglecting the weightier matters that only genuine love can produce. Love fulfills the law. Are there ways in which we pick the details of the commands that God has given for us, the ones that that, that can make us look good without requiring genuine love for God and others? To make it seem as if we're following God, we are loving God. But when you get down to the heart of it, when you get down to the weightier matters of the law, what's true? You're neglecting those. Love fulfills the law. We also read in the scribe's response that love exceeds ritual. Look in verses 32 through 33, where the scribe responds to him in agreement. He repeats the two greatest commandments, and he says that these that, 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 that they're more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. God prescribed many rituals for his people. They were to perform sacrifices and offerings as a way to express their allegiance to God. But in the, the scribe, in his response, his agreement with Jesus says, love for God and love for others, there's far greater, it's far more important than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices put together. God commanded these rituals, but all throughout Scripture, God also tells us that He hates the ritual without any love. 1 Samuel 15, verse 22, Samuel tells King Saul, Has the Lord Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Psalm 51, 16 through 17 says, You will not delight in sacrifice, or else I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. If you read the opening pages of the book of Isaiah, God begins his speech to Israel by pointing out the emptiness of their rituals and their sacrifices while their heart is far from them. Isaiah 1 verse 11, God tells Israel, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings. 
I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. He says later on in verse 14, your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. These are all rituals and commands that God himself had given to Israel for them to follow. And they're following them. They're going through the ritual. And God's looking at their ritual, separated from a heart of genuine love for him and love for others. And he says, I hate those rituals. They are a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. And so in verse 16 and 17, he says, instead... Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Love others. Love me. Hosea 6.6, again, he says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And here we see how love is supreme. God hates the ritual when there is no heart of love. God despises your church attendance and your singing and your rule keeping if there is no love in your heart for God and others. 1 Corinthians 13, 1-3, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm like a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal, And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. God hates ritual when there is no love. You're yelling at your wife and kids all the way to church. (laughs) And you put on the smile. And you sing praises to God. And you say, how are you doing, brother? Good to see you. That's nothing to God. God hates that. You quote scripture. You're involved in church. But you do it not out of love for others, but out of love for the recognition and attention. God hates that. That means nothing to him. We focus so much on the minute details of our faith while neglecting the greatest commandment of all. We perform the rituals and go through the motions with no love in our hearts. May God show us what his love truly looks like. The scribe in agreement with Jesus says, to love God and to love others is more than whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. It exceeds ritual. It fulfills the law. It is supreme. When Jesus hears the scribe's agreement, he's pleased. And again, in verse 34, he tells the scribe, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You're so close to the kingdom. What made him close? I believe it's because he agreed with God's perspective on life. He saw the importance of a genuine and devoted love for God. He saw the connection between love for God and love for others. He recognized the wisdom of Jesus and he agreed with Jesus. And I tell you as well, you're so close to the kingdom 
when you see life from God's perspective, when you agree with him on, what's, on what is most important. But agreeing with Jesus is not enough. It's a good start. It's not enough. What would allow this scribe to go from close to the kingdom to be part of the kingdom? I believe it would be to realize not only the wisdom of Jesus' words, but to realize the life found in Jesus himself. Not only to agree with the words of Jesus, but to embrace the gospel of Jesus. In an ironic statement, as Jesus says, you're not close from the kingdom, in a very literal way, he's standing right in front of Jesus himself. He's not very far away. And the other religious leaders asked him questions to test and discredit him, but this scribe asks him a question because he saw the wisdom of Jesus' words. He wants to know that question that we began our sermon with this morning. What does the Lord require of me? What does he want? Scripture doesn't tell us what happens to the scribe after this exchange. It doesn't tell us if he went from close to the kingdom to part of the kingdom. But it does leave it on a hopeful note. Soon this scribe would see Jesus Christ suffer and die on a cross. He would see the love of God displayed for him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. This scribe was about to see that love. He was about to experience the love of God. Would you, would he respond to that love of God for him by loving him fully, by embracing him and his gospel, by falling at his feet? Will you do that? As you hear the the commandment to love God and others this morning, is it just an amen? Is it just a yes, I agree? Or is it my only hope is found in Jesus Christ? Love itself. Love embodied. The one who left his throne to come for me, to give his life as a sacrifice, as a ransom for my sins. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends, and now he offers you to embrace that love, to receive that free gift, to call on him for salvation. The Bible says that when you do that, he transforms you, he redeems you, he makes you his own, he gives you a heart of flesh, he removes the heart of stone, gives you a heart of flesh. And as a result, you know what happens when he transforms and redeems us? He told his disciples that by this all people will know that you are my disciples, by the love that you have for one another. And where did they find that love? From the love that Christ has shown them. Are you close to the kingdom? or part of the kingdom. Don't just agree with him this morning. Embrace him for the forgiveness of sins and the love that he offers you today. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for giving us such clear truth. We confess we so often get caught up in all the do's and don'ts that we forget the greatest commandment of all. It's so easy for us to go through all the motions while having a complete lack of love for you and love for others. God, I pray that you would show us your love, that you would show us who you are so that as we look on your glory, we reflect your love toward others.